welcome. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. Our desire at Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois, is to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny perfectly orchestrated for those who are willing to be adventurous enough to receive His favor and blessing into their life. Our prayer is that you will allow the presence of the comforting Spirit of God to radically display the Father's love for you. You are a part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Now over to our guest minister for today. Thank you for having me back. This is my favorite place to be. I'm a globetrotter. I've been to 29 countries before, and out of all the places I've traveled, this is my favorite one. It helps that my best friend in life is one of the people here, but I love all of you. And... uh, have gotten to know you well. When I, when I retire, Chris and I are moving into Stephen Kay's basement, and I'm going to teach kids church here until I'm 108 years old. So that's my, that's my plan. <laughs> it's on the recording. Yeah, there you go. Um, today I'm stepping out of even my own comfort zone. I am a... Uh, I'm the head of theology and biblical studies for the largest spirit-led seminary in the world. It's called Covenant Evangelical Seminary. We're into over almost 100 countries around the world and training up people all over the place, thousands and thousands of students. And so um, I'm in, in charge of trying to figure out how we can best equip people that are being trained. And we've got people that are, I know a lot of you guys are in Bible college right now. Raise your hand if you're in Bible college right now. That's great. We've got quite a few people that are signed up and ready to go. So this is my, those. that's the heart. Those of you that just raised your hand, that's where my number one missional calling is, is to people that have decided that they are all in like that and ready to go. Now, that's difficult because my heart is that everybody is all in and ready to go. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the idea of discipleship. And discipleship, as Steve kind of alluded to, gets thrown around a lot. You hear that term meaning a whole bunch of different things like, oh, what's your discipleship program at your church? Have you ever heard people kind of speak that language before? I usually roll my eyes when I hear that language. And so, um, hopefully your discipleship program is the church, if you're following me. And so, so I want to know what it looks like. Now, normally I find myself off on tangents of Greek and Hebrew and all kinds of stuff, but I'm going to speak less that way and more in just an aspect that I think Jesus spoke to people. Jesus spoke Aramaic, which was the peasants' language. I'm not calling anybody peasants here, don't get me wrong. But I'm going to, I'm going to speak simple language because that's all we need for this message, is simple language. And so, with that being said, I think that we all realize that the preeminent missional calling of the entire Bible, what this, what this says, if I could sum it up into what, what the message of it is, is it's that Jesus wants people to be disciples and to make disciples. That's the Great Commission, as simple as that. Well, what does that mean? What's the definition? 
Um, a lot of times people get hung up on salvation on the Great Commission. It's really interesting because we have the word baptism in the Great Commission, so that kind of goes right to the front line of making us think that it's mostly about salvation. But as we go today, you're going to find out that the major part of making disciples and being disciples is actually growing more deeper, growing more intimate. And Bob, I am on the same page as you. It pained me all weekend to be in a room with just married couples talking about covenant intimacy because that's the message that everybody needs is covenant intimacy. If you can get it right in your own life and with the Lord, then you're going to get it right with your spouse. So I wrote a book a year ago that's been on your shelf for a little while and I wrote it starting for the marriage conference that we did last year because I was writing a book to the married couples of saying how can you be in covenant intimacy and about three weeks into the book that Pastor Steve was making me write, I scratched the whole thing and I said I can't just write this to married couples, it's got to be to the world. It's got to be a message that the world needs. I've just finished the follow-up to that book that should be out in a few weeks, and it's about the next step. It's about what does deeper discipleship look like. And so, um, it's about a 200-page book, and you might need to get an interlinear out to figure out the Greek and Hebrew in that one. It's a little deeper than the first one. But I I can't possibly teach on 180 pages today. So you guys are getting the introduction version today. So when I teach a seminary class, we teach the first week is the introduction to the class before we even dive into the class. So today, you're not going to learn everything there is to learn about discipleship. That's Pastor Steve and Pastor Bob's job, Pastor Ryan's job. They can, they can get the rest of the story when I'm done, but I'm going to set you up with a better biblical way of thinking about discipleship today. So, there were several resets in the Bible. Maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't. But we kind of get Noah and the flood and God says, nobody's righteous. We need a great reset. Why does he need a great reset? He needs a great reset because the, the ultimate plan, the reason we were created, was to be intimate with the Lord. And I can't even imagine this, although sometimes I wonder how close we are to this in our world, that there were none righteous except for Noah and his family. And even that, sometimes we get some really marginal pictures of righteousness in the life of Noah. Yeah, did that ever hit you? You're like... Boy, I'm glad God called him righteous because that makes me feel a whole lot better about myself. And then we get to Israel. And we think that this nation of priests, God's plan was to build into into Israel and they were going to go win everybody else over for the Lord, yet it falled on deaf ears. It It was a huge failure. And then Jesus comes and dies on the cross, and he does it again. He says, now I need to do this great commission to be intimate with me and bring others to be intimate with me. And now we're 2,000 years into this, and it has me wondering. 
In Jesus' time, those that walked with him, his disciples, believed that he was coming back within their lifetime. Did you know that? I mean, you you read the scriptures, and that is very apparent. In fact, um, there's a there's kind of a word for this in in theology. Uh, I'm a partial preterist, meaning that I believe that most prophecy that was in the Bible has already been fulfilled. There's some of it, like of course Jesus coming back, and some of the things mentioned in Revelations that will still happen. Most of you probably don't size up that way, but that's a whole nother conversation, and maybe a few books. Um, but what we can agree on in here is that there's there's still work that needs to be done. We're we're, we're not just get, Jesus didn't just say, "Oh, you guys failed me again. I'm finally done with you." Do you know what I'm saying? Like the story isn't finished yet. And sometimes I wonder if he was waiting for the church to truly become disciples, and he's still waiting for the church to truly become disciples. So, the million dollar question is when Jesus calls us to discipleship. He says, I want you to do one thing. I want you to be my disciple. What did that mean? Because it seems like in our world we haven't quite figured it out yet. There's two theological views to being a disciple. Both of them have a very similar result. So, I need to first tell you things they have in common before I get to the two views. The things that they have in common is everywhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you're called a follower, a fan, a disciple, one who resonates with Jesus, all of the intentions are that you be all in. Doesn't matter if you just came to Jesus yesterday, you've been walking for a couple years, you're in a deep discipleship program like Karis, like some of you guys are into, you're an elder in the church. No matter where the level is, all of that, what God is asking you for is to take an all-in, a wholly given mindset. And so... We get this idea that we're aliens. Now, I totally feel like an alien in this world. Like, I, I walk around with Jesus in me and I go, this doesn't look like the rest of the world. The allegiance of the heart shouldn't be anywhere else but to God. That's, that's another thing that we have in common. And I, I think this church has that. You get that. That, that, you know, we might try to have impact on those around us in a fallen, broken world, but we belong to Jesus. And you shouldn't be torn on that one. That, that shouldn't be a question that you're graveling with. You should just know Jesus wants you and He wants all of you every single day, every single minute. Sometimes we have been given things. Pastor Bob was talking about what have you been given. And there's a mindset of an all-in disciple for both of these views that what you have is not your own. Everybody gets that theoretically, but do you live it? That's really the hard one. Like, you know, the New Testament church, this sounds so crazy. And, you know, some people kind of write it off. Well, they thought Jesus was coming back in, you know, right now. And so they gave up everything. They got together in their church and they just, they just sold everything and said, here you go to the church. I don't believe that they did that because they thought Jesus was coming back next year or the year after. I believe that they did that because that's what Jesus asked them to do. 
In the Old Testament, sometimes we gravel with how much should we be giving. Was it 10%? Was it 20%? The right number is probably 23 and one-third percent if you lived in the Old Testament. And I could get into that, but I won't. During the, during the time of David, they probably actually gave as much as 40%. So that's what they asked. But the crazy thing is, is when you get to the New Testament, Jesus makes it pretty clear that actually that's not what he wants, that that was legalism in the Old Testament. What he wants is all of you. So don't be legalistic. Give Jesus all of you. Christians are commanded over and over to give freely, sacrificially, generously, joyfully, all of this stuff. It's really interesting that the, one of the reasons in the Old Testament that they were asked to give so much back was because there was a connotation that some of that was the world's and it didn't belong in their lives. Think about that for a second. So there's this idea that when they were asked to give to the needy, was it the Christian needy? It wasn't. It was just the needy. And so there's this idea in the Old Testament that if they had money that belonged to Caesar, that actually had no place in a Christian home. Think about that one for a minute. So we're going to, anything that we've gotten from Caesar, we're actually just going to give back to the broken and the needy. But if it's Jesus, we're only giving stuff back to the church that has been consecrated and holy. And the biggest thing that you have that resembles that is yourself because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the, the question is, if it's not of Jesus, he doesn't want it, give it back to the world, so to speak. But I want everything that's sacred and I want all of it. One of the scariest verses in the Bible is Matthew 5.48 where it says, Be perfect as I am perfect. That one get under anybody's skin. Anybody have nightmares about that one at night? Well, it's not as bad as you would think. And I am definitely not one to water down anything in the Bible. So don't, don't, don't get me off here. Perfection, according to the world, says you're never good enough. That's what they're preaching. That's what the world is trying to get you to believe, is that you're never good enough. Don't be confused with the world's definition of perfection in your Bible. That's not the biblical definition of perfection. The biblical definition of perfection is to be completely whole, totally given, All in. So when Jesus tells us that he wants us to be perfect as he is perfect, given unto the Father, what he's actually saying is to be completely devoted, to be in total harmony, as if you were a symphony. That's a little code word for the marriage people over the weekend. That your fingers, as Psalm 144 says, might be trained. And that was code word for all of you. In the Old Testament, you might remember this the last time I was here. Those are code words for nefesh. That it's not just my heart, that it's not my soul. They didn't understand where any of this stuff was in the Old Testament. They just simply said, may may my fingers honor you. May my toes honor you. May what's in here up here honor you. It's all in. Everything should honor you. And it doesn't matter... When you look at 
the definition of a disciple in the Bible, anytime you read about a disciple or a follower of Christ or a, a student of the Old Testament or something like that, the mindset is that. It's of a disciple. In the New Testament, it's called the disciple. In the Old Testament, it's called Talmudim. And it's all over the Old Testament. When you look for it, you'll find it. But I'll show you some of those today. So, here's some biblical tenets of giving all of yourself as a disciple. One of them is to give to God first and foremost. That, that if you are torn in the world at all, you need to give to God first and foremost. The next is knowing God's will. You need to be in tune with what the Lord has for you. If you're not praying over this every day, that's my first suggestion. Pray that you be within the will of the Lord. The next thing is that you need to give in response to what God has given you, the gifts that the Lord has given you. So if you, if you have a tremendous gift, if you are the if you are on the PGA Tour and you're one of the best golfers in the world, then you need to give according to the gift that Jesus has given you. You need to figure that out because that could be extremely powerful in the kingdom. If, if you are somebody that has an incredible gift of food, you need to figure out how you can give of your best resources of your food. So I think we all get gifts, but I wanted to paint little pictures. Get out of wholesome, sincere desire. Now, this is the hardest one because at first, your gifting desire might not be off the charts. You know what I'm saying? But, but you need to train yourself. And it needs to be bathed with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm a giver. That's one of my favorite things in life. I just love to give, 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 give. In fact, I go out of my way. My, sometimes I drive my wife crazy because we'll be going on a weekend retreat and some of you guys have been recipients of it. And I'll go shopping for months ahead of time to come up with the perfect gift to give people that will have meaning that they will take with them and remember for a long time. And every every time they see it, it will actually remind them of the spiritual truth that was in them on the weekend. And then I look for the exact time where the message comes with the gift. If I'm giving a knife that has a little 44 carved into it, I'm going to wait until Jesus gives me the exact moment that that has a great illustration of cutting something away in their life, and that's when I'm giving it to them. If it's a coffee mug, then I want it to be their life to be a picture of being completely overflowing and full, so I fill it up and pour it on them and then think they'll remember that. (laughs) Give beyond your ability. Now, some of you guys, again, this is a worldly thing. You think that you only have so much. And we measure this in numbers all the time. I mean, we say, okay, I've got this in my bank account. My car's worth this. My home's worth this. Uh, You know, it's like we live by the world standards when it comes to numbers. One of the things that 44 means, which is really neat, there's some pages out on the table out there that explain a little bit about it. If that's not enough, if you go to expedition44.com, there's 16 more pages that tell you the significance about what the number means. One of the little things, I'll give you just a little piece of it, is that 
there's remnant people, I'm going to get to this later, those are people that despite the rest of the world, they lived their lives out for Jesus and did their best to do that for God in the Old Testament, whatever it is. And they wanted to be perfect before the Lord. Remember the definition of perfect. They wanted to be perfect before the Lord. And so they're going to come up with a number, because in the Old Testament, people had mosaics. They flew flags that represented their households. They, they took seashells and stuff, and they put pictures, and they said, this is who we are. It's actually started when there was blood around the doorposts. You'll get that. And so... So they came up with a number that would represent their community. And the number in the Bible over and over, this is called numerology, do not get too hung up in it. But the number that meant to be all in, completely perfect, wholly given, was 22. Now what they found was that they didn't want to just give everything that they had, but they found that if they give everything that they had and they prayed that the Lord bless it, then what the Lord did was innumerably more. You get 70 times 7 means, we have no idea what this number is, but we can get there. So what this means is by my life, the 44 means that I'm going to take everything that God's given me, and I there's some stuff in here that is like, beyond my knowledge of what He's given me. I think my spiritual gift here is a 2, and all of a sudden the the Holy Spirit gets a hold of that thing and it turns into not a 10, but a 110. And it's a thing that was my... This is a contronym. A contronym means something that has two meanings. It has the one meaning, which means something that you don't really like, and then an extreme meaning of that, which is something that you totally like. So in this life, it might be that I don't think I'm a very compassionate person. If you know me very much, I don't have very much patience. I am just a go, 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 do it, do it, do it. And when somebody's dragging their feet, especially spiritually, I really have to talk myself in to talking to them rightly. Like, I just want to say, get your act together, what's the matter? with you but usually I'm a little kinder a little gentler than that a little more bathed in the spirit than that but sometimes I still go to battle when I take this thing that I say I'm like the most ungentle person ever and I bathe it in the Lord and say Lord I'm just going to do my best I'm going to give it to you and then I go counsel somebody I've had people that I've counseled say I have never met somebody as patient and as gentle as you before and I go are you insane do you not know me they know Jesus not me give to produce equality All over the Bible, it talks about being equal. Now, how can a church be equal? Isn't that crazy? Yet, yet Paul, over and over in the Bible, says that before the Lord, when we come in here, we're equal. Now, it's kind of crazy that the New Testament church actually took that very literally and gave away everything so that they were equal before the Lord. I mean, can you just just fathom that for a second? That if... Next week, Pastor Steve said, hey, we're coming in here and we're going to check everything at the door. You literally checked everything at the door. House, car, whatever, and said, when we step in this room, we are all in. We don't have any idea how that works in a 21st century world, but we're going there. 
Give joyfully. Sometimes that starts in toil, turmoil, all kinds of stuff. Give joyfully. Give because you're growing spiritually. If you're growing spiritually, give more. If you take another step, grow more. If you take another step, grow more and give. And desire that to continue. And give because you see fruit. Now, I could keep going with this list all day. I mean, hundreds of ones on there. I've got an article on our Expedition 44 page that I think lists almost a thousand different ways to give. But I'll spare you that because I am going to try to finish before 6.30. (laughs) Regardless of your view, I'm not even actually to the actual message yet. I'm still just setting up the message. Regardless of the view that you take for your life, if you go with this view or this view or a hybrid or whatever, the basis of either view is that you decide that you're completely in. If you haven't made that decision today and you're sitting here, the decision, the the number one decision you're made, regardless of anything on discipleship, is that when you leave today that you can say a prayer and give your life to be completely in. And to be honest, Jesus isn't into the details after you make that decision. We can talk about theologically what discipleship means and which view you take all day long and into the next year and everything else. But Jesus says, love God and love others very simply of, I want you to be my disciple, to grow intimate with me and bring that to everybody that you come in contact with. And that I want everybody in this world to be saved, but that's only the first step of sanctification. There's a whole lot more to growing intimate from there. Last time I was here, I shared a message of the walk. This is the Greek verb, peripateo. It's a Hebrew idiom for halach. And it means to walk in praise in everything that you do. And so, as in the garden, we were created to walk Halak with God in everything that we do. So today, as we consider discipleship in what the rest of our lives look like, all in for the Lord, I encourage you to halak, to walk with the Lord. Pastor Bob, can you get up and just pray us into the next minute of our message? The first view you might have heard before, this has been out since 1974, that was the year I was born. It was started by somebody named Bill Bright, you might recognize that name because he was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. Another person's name was Lauren Cunningham, he founded Youth with a Mission, which is still one of my favorite organizations in the entire world. And so, they came out with this idea that... We need to influence every major place of life in the world with the fervor of all-in discipleship. After that, Bill Johnson, Lance Walnew, Johnny Inlu, I could keep going, a whole bunch of people get on this bandwagon and there's still, right now, books being written about it. In fact, 
one of my great pastor friends in my own town, is writing a book as we speak today, preaching on another chapter of it, about how to be all in in every influence, every sphere that we come in contact with. So these spheres are identified a little differently according to who's talking or speaking, but the original spheres were religion, family, education, government, media, arts, entertainment, and business. And they said if we could get to the point where all-in Christians influence these areas so much that these areas of the world become completely driven by Jesus and the Bible, what would that world look like? Now, essentially, the plan in the Garden of Eden was to grow a world that completely walked and fellowshiped with God. The fall happened, Israel happened, we're here. All these are kind of like little pictures of kind of failure. Now, we're sort of a picture of failure, but we're sort of not. You ever figure that one out? I'm waiting to see which direction this is going to go with humanity. Right now, it doesn't look like we're doing a very good job in this area, does it? I mean, boy, I look at education today, public schools... I've been an educator in Christian education for more than 12 years. I've got a master's degree in administration. I've, I've been at the top of the Association of Christian Schools International. I hear you guys are starting a Christian school. Amen. Now, I love that perspective, and right now, it is, it is the best perspective on it. But I would even love it more if every school in the country was wired the way the school that you're starting is wired. We can get there. Disciples at the helm of everything. Now, I don't know what you guys think about our current president. I give him respect, as First Second Peter says. But I would rather Steve Castle be the president of the United States. The problem is, in the current world we live in, Steve Castle is never, sorry Steve, going to be the President of the United States because he looks too much like Jesus. And that is the brutal truth. Along with this view is that God is not wrapped up in too much of the specific details of your life. He doesn't really care if you're a banker or a lawyer or a farmer or a pig farmer, I I don't know, whatever else. He just cares that you're all in. Go do whatever you want to do, but represent me every little step along the way. And every single person that comes in contact you better be blinded by the light if you're walking right. It's a very dynamic plan. Love God, love others. Now, this does take on the mindset with most people today, because we're in cultural America, to work 30, 40, 50 hours a week and to, you know, still have a Christian family and a Christian school and give of your church and things like that. But that's the culture that we live in. 
But that's the hardest thing about this view. And maybe you don't have to take on that in order to take on the view at the same time. Maybe it's a hybrid, like I said earlier, that you find a way that you can only work 10 or 15 hours a week and give, and, and give everything else and still have a house and all that stuff. I'm going to say this is the hardest part about this view. This is the one that you really should be struggling with the most, is that do you need to work in the world? Do you need to be immersed there? Is, is that if you were really at the top of whatever you're doing, are you going to be working at all for the world or is it all Jesus? But every situation is so different and there are seasons that are different. So what God might be saying an all-in season or a time looks like here might be very different than that. You know, to me, building an ark looks nothing like all-in discipleship in the New Testament, yet it was. Now there's another part of this kind of thinking. This is still the first view, this seven mountain mandate view. The first part of this is, God is okay with material wealth and at times might even bless people intentionally to prosper according to what the world says is prosperous. Sometimes we have a very negative word for this called health and wealth, prosperity, teaching and preaching. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The problem is, is I'm a totally biblical guy, and when I go to the Old Testament, which is my favorite place to camp out, literally, I see the life of Abraham, and you see verses that say he was blessed with these material possessions that it might be a sign of the God that he had. It's called the retribution principle in the Old Testament. Did God actually bless materialistically as a sign of who God was? Job really struggles with this one. I mean, we've got an 11-part video series on Expedition 44's YouTube page on Job, and it's had hundreds of thousands of clicks because the world is wrestling with this one. Does the Lord bless people in that way? And the answer is, He can, but He doesn't have to. He may, He may not. I'm also going to say, do you really want to pray that? I mean, people get all hung up in, is money the root of all evil? Is the love of money the root of all It's not much different if you didn't figure that out. It's just about the same quote, no matter how you say it, and it's of the world. That's the problem. So, if you take this mindset of the first view that I'm describing, it means that you're all in as a New Testament priesthood of believer person, but you're just ready to let God dynamically work however He's going to work in your life. You're just saying, God, my hands are up to you, my arms are open to you, take me for the ride of my spiritual life. Now that sounds pretty good, right? You're all sold on this one? Sermon done, ready to walk out of the room and be ready to go? The problem is, there's another view that after about ten minutes of explaining, you might be hook, line, and sinker on the next one. So let me tell you the next one. 
The second one is what you might have heard described as true discipleship. The person that owns this, I would say, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might know who that was, a great theologian theologian in World War II. He wrote several works on discipleship, but the one that this really hits home on is called The Cost of Discipleship. And he paid what his book said was the cost of discipleship. He lost his life because of the model that he modeled of discipleship. It's interesting that every one of the disciples, and I'm going to say arguably with the exception of one, although I might be able to convince you of that too, lost their life because of their model of discipleship. There's an idea that Jesus says you need to be a disciple and what that picture, according to Jesus, looks like is on this beach, leave everything, don't return to it, and completely follow me. It's the New Testament church I've been alluding to that when you walk in that door, put your pink slips to the car in this box, house boxes right here, cash over here, credit cards over here, and be all in. This sounds nuts today. Totally nuts today. If I said right now I've got these six boxes, come up and sign up now, I am pretty sure that we would not get one person, no offense Pastor Steve, but including Pastor Steve, that could quite do that all in right now. But it actually took three years for the disciples to get there. And they still screwed up because you notice that after he was crucified, where did Jesus find him again? Fishing. The people that walked with Jesus that he explained this view to day in and day out for three years went back to fishing. I can only imagine Jesus walked up on the beach and went, are you kidding me? Remnants is a word that our world calls a loser. That's what a remnant is. If, if years ago when we first bought our house, we went to the carpet store and we looked at all the prices and I went, are you kidding me? Where's the cheap stuff? And the guy smiled who used to be a missionary and he goes, come into the back room with me. And he walks us back there and he goes, these are the remnants. We can stitch them together and make them work. We'll do like borders and designs and we'll come up with a great plan to make it work. Here's the poor option. Our world calls remnants losers, but in the backward kingdom of the Bible, it's these losers that become greatest of all. So pray that you might be a remnant person. Years ago, when my kids were the big one, how tall is Ty? 5'11", maybe? He's the big one. He's 16. I think he was only this tall. I think he was a preschool or kindergartner at the time. And I was sitting down with my little kids. And I, for my whole life, I've been um, very strategic about doing home church in our family. I love church. Now, when I say I love church, we all know... The church is the people of God, right? That's the first definition of the people of God. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you for a second, too. 
There is a version of the church that is actually this building and the other church building down the road and the steps on the front and the trucks that you drive could be called the church if you wanted to. There is a brick and mortar version of the church. I want my kids to experience every part of what church looks like. Now, if I bring them here, I was just in love that these girls were like all out on their face worshiping Jesus over there. I had to get down and join them. Because I want my kids from whatever age they're at to learn to be the worship leader and learn to be the one that marches up and tells why we need to give better. And the one that comes up and kind of sits in the shadows and plays the bass guitar. And the one that uh, has a little thing and does the lighting in the back. I mean, I've told my kids, hey, let's set up some lights for church before. I want them to experience every aspect of what a fully functioning church looks like. And that does happen through great functioning churches like this. But I'm impatient. I want to see it. So anyway, I sit my kids down. We do this little message, and it's about extreme commitment this big. And Ty, the oldest, I'm talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and saying how everything in the world looked, looked like nothing like Jesus. Jesus didn't exist in that world. Yet, He did, but nobody knew it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're going to represent God right here. And they did, and they were the remnant. And I said to my kids, who would do that? And Ty, without thinking, I think he was four and a half, said, I'll do that. And he was like all in at four and a half, just like that. I love, sometimes when I'm up here, I'm sitting here and these girls are face down on the floor and I'm thinking, we need to get back to that. But then one of the other kids, and because they're in the room and I love them and I don't want to put them on the spot, one of the other really little ones looked right back into my eyes and they said, Dad, why don't you live that way? Wow. I thought we were doing a pretty good job having home church and everything else. I thought we're on it. We got this. It was as Jesus landed next to me, spoke through my, I don't know, one or two year old kid that could hardly speak, and says, I need another step. I need you to come a little further. God bless kids and Jesus. We're literally going to be here till 6 o'clock if I do all this. So I'm just going to give you a little more. There were disciples throughout the whole Old Testament. Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, you'll remember that one. The Jeremiah prophet, disciples of Samuel, all these things. Early in the picture of Israel, disciples were a big part of it. They were called Talmudim. And so you get this as you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, a little bit in Genesis, but a lot of it when you get to the later prophetic books. 
there seems to be this idea that there is this remnant called Talmudim, which is the word for disciples that we use, that we're all in, but the rest of the culture was really struggling. Like I said, I would actually just call Israel a total failure in that area. And then you get to the second temple period. They want to build this temple again after it's destroyed and they're in exile. And they try to build it, but most scholars would, would agree that the Lord's presence actually never came back into that second temple. And so, Pastor Steve can tell you more about that later. I don't have time today. But the point is, discipleship got off course. It got really off course. And by the time that Jesus came, the religious disciples of the day are the ones that actually put Jesus on the cross. That's a problem. Today, I'm not sure it looks much different sometimes. So, a lot of people in the Bible were calling those that were under a rabbi a disciple. And you'll see when you go to John 1, let's just go there, flip over to John 1. Should we do like a sword drill or anything like that? John 1, oh, you guys are way faster than I am today. And I'm just going to read one verse. You should read the whole thing later. But let's go to 143. So this is the first time he meets the disciples, and I want to organize his encounters with disciples. John 1, I would argue, is actually the only one that you get this, this story. And it's the very first time he meets them. And he, he comes, and, you know, if you're trying to, I don't know if you're the type that has to figure every single thing out, but if you are, this is most likely Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, and Peter. I'll do about seven hours of research for you and just give you that. So, Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, and Peter are here, and they're following John the Baptist, and John says, I'm not the guy, but the guy's walking towards us right there. And they all look at him and they pretty much say, well, we want to follow the guy then. And John the Baptist says, yeah, you should go follow the guy. Go do that. And so in verse 43, it says, The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. This is the first invitation to be disciples in the Bible by Jesus. But he doesn't call them disciples. Isn't that interesting? He just says, follow me. Facebook used to call these fans. Do you remember? I'm really dating myself here. Do you want to be a fan of somebody or a business or something like that? In the Bible, this first encounter, that's all I would call them as a fan. Now, we get the idea that they were with John. They were devout. So, were they saved? Everybody always likes to draw the line of salvation in the, lo- in, in the, in the dirt, which kind of drives me nuts sometimes. Who are we to judge when they're saved? I don't know. But we're just going to say they're, they're probably pretty deep in their convictions with, the, with God at this point. And so they say, we're going to follow. So they start following Him along. You guys in this life, have a lot of people that think you're, the reflection of Jesus in your life looks admirable. You need to recognize that and start working in that area. That there are people that, 
whose life in the world is a total mess and they look at you and they do want to follow you. It's like we always want to hide our light, like we're afraid to talk about Jesus. And the, the thing is, is there's people out there that desire more than you could possibly know to be right again, to be pure, to be free, to be delivered. And it's like they're standing there at the line at Dollar General, and you can just see in their eyes that that's what they want more than anything, and you've got the answer to the biggest problem in their life. Why wouldn't you want to share that? So Jesus lets them follow Him for a little while. And then we get a couple more pictures. Mark 1 and Matthew 4 are counter pictures. It's telling the same story. So let's go to Matthew 4.18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's the first one. You know that. Matthew 4.18. And if we would read Mark 1, which you could read later, it says almost the exact same thing. It says, And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net. Now, these are the same guys that I just introduced you to a second ago, but some time's gone by. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, it doesn't take somebody with a THD in theology to figure out that he repeated what he said the last time. Follow me. Why does he have to say it again? Have you ever asked that question? Why aren't they following him right now? Where are they? Well, they're fishing. They're doing what they do, right? He had to go find them in their places of employment, essentially. So he goes, goes to find them in their places of employment, and he says, did you not get the message the first time I gave it to you? I asked you to follow me. Now, by their standards, by rabbinical Talmudim standards for the last 300 years, they are following him. By the world's definition, by good people's, religious people's definition, they're following him. Yet Jesus says very clearly, there's a reason why both times the red letters in both of these stories are very small. When you get small red letters, it means it's really important that you get the message. Both sections that we read only really have one or two lines, and what they have in common is reiteration. Follow me. So now, we push forward to another few pages. Let's go to Luke 5. This is not the same thing that you just read, although it sounds very similar to it. Let's go to 5.10. Well, it's really the whole chapter. I'm glad you guys brought your Bibles here. I'll kind of summarize it. We get this picture. It says, you know, in verse 5, and Simon answers, it says, Master, we worked hard. So at this point, that word for Master, your, your Bible might actually say Rabbi. They were referring to him as Rabbi. They had been following him for a while, but There's a few things we learn. He shows back up to their work environment again. 
He's going to work with them. And this time, he's kind of like, what are you guys doing? Didn't I ask you to do something? Well, they're back in the world. They're back at their jobs. And so he says, now, you didn't get it the first couple times, so let me paint a better picture. You haven't caught any fish. You guys stink at your worldly professions. Throw it out on the other side and let me just show you a picture of what your life can look like. And they reel it in and they keep going and they're going. And then in 5.11, it says, They immediately take their boats in and they leave everything and they follow Him. Now some scholars write this off and they said, oh, they were like managers. They had a bunch of people. They couldn't have been that good of managers because they were out fishing. I literally believe that they left the boats and thousands of dollars worth of the world's commodity on the shore maybe looked over to the needy people over there and went, hey, and they walked with Jesus. And this time, they seem to sort of get the picture, but you read the next couple chapters, we get the calling of Levi, we get Jesus as, you know, kind of telling a picture of the Sabbath. It's not until another chapter that we actually get the little text that says Jesus actually chooses all of the twelve. But I still actually think that they were with him until he chose the twelve. And then when all the twelve are there, then we get this great picture that they actually didn't go back to work until after he died. That they walked every day with him. So the challenge, regardless of when you live, whether you live in 60 A.D. or whether you live in 350 A.D., or 1610 A.D., or 1776 and you're in the revolution, or 2022 and you're about to get in the next revolution, are you following Jesus the way that He asked you to follow Him? Now, Perhaps these are different steps of discipleship. Perhaps they're different places. But when Jesus says over and over to follow me, he's not talking about the world or the religious people's definition of following him. He's making his own new, reclaimed, kainos definition of following him. I want you all in, all the time, And I'm going to hold your hand and I'm going to show you every day as you walk with me what that looks like. Those are the two views. Could they be the same view? Could there be hybrids? Could there be someplace in between? God has called people throughout the Bible, throughout all times of history, to look a lot of different views, to wear a lot of different hats, to use lots of different gifts of discipleship. And I would be silly to sit here and tell you that the only view of discipleship is to completely quit your jobs and everything else and be all in. But if you did, I would say hallelujah. I have a friend who's a loser. Biggest loser I've ever met. This is my favorite friend's story. And I've got lots of friends. 
His name's Keith. He lives up in Wausau. We used to, my parents used to live in Wausau. I got to know this guy. This guy has never ever owned a car before in his life. Well, I should say he's never bought one. He's owned them because a lot of people just give him cars. He's never had a job that he gets paid for in his life. This is kind of strikes into all that stuff out on that table is free. You guys have been trained this way, I think, with Steve, that like, it's not my money, it's not my stuff. If you, you can take it all. Go load up your vans after church. This guy literally is the only guy I know that really lives that way. Nothing is his. Somebody gives him a bag of shirts, he throws it in the back of his 1984 caravan, and the next day if somebody needs a shirt, he's got shirts to give it to him. If the car stops running, he pulls it over on the side of the road and puts a little sign on it that says, please fix for Jesus, and comes back. I'm not kidding about this one. Comes back three days later and it's fixed. It's amazing to me that he lives with this kind of faith. I take, I take youth group kids up to like spend three days with him because I've, I don't know of another way to learn three days of discipleship in the picture of just walking next to him. And the kids are like, is this like a show? Is this like a skit? What is this, you know? This is just Keith. There was one time where he decided that he was going to hold up a sign on the side of the road and say, free prayers! And he, he goes to this busy thoroughfare and he holds it up on the side of the road and everybody thinks he's nuts. And the cops come and the cops look him in the eyes and they're like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta move. You can't be out here on the side of the road like you're gonna get hit or killed or something like that. So he, he leaves, but the next day he's in the same spot and the cops come back the next day and everything else. Well, pretty soon, one cop gives her life to the Lord. The next cop, they say, hey, cop number one, go tell that guy he can't do that anymore over the radio. And the guy goes, yeah, I'm busy. You better send somebody else. (laughs) The next cop comes out, and guess what happens to the next cop? And the next cop, and the next cop. And pretty soon, the police of Wausau have orange cones out on the side of the road. Hold, make a bigger sign. There's a sign maker down the road. I'll hook you up. And about a month later, people start pulling in for prayer. And this guy, this guy's a church hopper. You know, we don't have good words in the religious community for church hopper. He goes to four churches. And pretty soon, he's trying to get people to come pray. And they go, boy, I don't know if I can stand to sign out and like do that. Like, he needs help. There are people out there that take the jump of radical Jesus-style discipleship and make it work. They don't really make it work. But it works. Fan, follower, or disciple. What does that look like in your life? Lord, I come to you tonight, today, whatever time it is. It might be tonight by now. By the end of your ministry, you had thousands of people following you. And in John 6, there's only 70 left. 
Lord, would you call us to be one of those 70? Would you give us a heart, a spirit that drives everything that we are, our complete nefesh, our hands, our fingers, our toes, that we might pray that this is our season, that we be completely all in. And if we're not in a place in life where we are ready to do this, that we're a little too entangled in the world and we're not sure that we can make this step, Lord, help us to pray to get there. Help us to be devoted, to be trained, that our fingers might be trained by You to bring us to a place of better joy in Your kingdom. Lord, we want to honor You with everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we've been given, given back to You at Your altar so that we can see the results of 70 times 7 for the kingdom of God. And Lord, if that means that every sphere of this world, education, religion, whatever it is, looks like You, then Lord, I'm ready for that. Bring us there, Lord. Bring us on that journey. Mold us, move us, make us, inspire us. One step at a time to be disciples completely given to you. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of His life-changing Word. If you would like to learn more about Steve Castle Ministries and Beloved Church, you can go online to stevecastle.com or belovedchurchillinois.com. You can also contact us at 815-990-0367. Always remember that you are a part of the Beloved Family of God, and Beloved Church is the place where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart to receive as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. I pray, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health prospering your body and all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved.